0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, FlowHealth, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A
1: slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone,
2: I'm Creighton. I'm the supervising producer here on Decoder. Because of the Apple event that's tomorrow and code conference that's running for the next few days, we were actually planning on being dark this week, so no episode in the feed, but we thought about it and we didn't want to leave you hanging. So instead, we're reaching into the back catalog and dropping nila's interview with Tony Fidel. Tony was an executive at, Apple, an executive at Google. And even though the interview is kind of centered around Tony's new book, Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making, he also has a ton of great stories from his time working at the tech giants. This interview is great. If you haven't listened to it, I wholeheartedly recommend it. If you have listened to it, listen to it again. It's still really good. Maybe you'll learn more about uh, managing people. Maybe you'll learn something new. So, okay, Let's just get to it. Without further ado, let's hit that intro music.
3: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas, other problems. Today, I'm talking to Tony Fidel, who was instrumental in the development of the iPod and iPhone at Apple. He then co-founded Nest Labs, which kicked off the consumer smart home market with a smart thermostat in 2011. Tony sold Nest to Google for $3.2 billion in 2014, he eventually left Google and now runs an investment company called FutureShape. Tony's just written a new book called Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. And I will be honest with you, this book is total bait for Decoder. It's one part memoir, one part tech industry gossip, and one part org charts and decision-making. Seriously, this book has a lengthy section with actual diagrams of org charts to illustrate how company cultures change as things get bigger. Like I said, it's total bait for Decoder. Now, I've known Tony for years. Nest launched in 2011, just like The Verge itself. And one of my first big stories for our new tech website was a feature on Tony and his thermostat. He's always been a huge character and completely open with his time, advice, and opinions. There's an F-bomb within the first eight minutes of this interview, which is very much in character for Tony Fidel. But Build is a great book because Tony is so unflinchingly honest about decisions and challenges. He has a lot to say about figuring out how to shape your career, knowing when to change jobs, managing people, managing more people over time and navigating big companies. Most importantly, he knows how hard it is to make new things, which I think is very often taken for granted. Tony's made some of the biggest new things around, and talking to him is a good reminder that even companies we think of as really innovative, like Apple and Google, can be completely allergic to change, and that really big ideas take a long time to develop. A few notes, because Tony and I have known each other for a long time, and we just got into it. Tony talks a lot about the first company he ever worked at called General Magic. It's been called Silicon Valley's most influential failure. General Magic tried to make what was effectively the first smartphone in the early 90s. The company was a disaster, but it incubated a ton of talent across the industry. There's a fun documentary, if you're interested, it's called General Magic. We talk a lot about VR and AR, that's virtual reality and augmented reality, and Meta's VR headset Oculus, which is all connected to the idea of the metaverse, which is a virtual world you might live in. Tony also talks about SGI, that's Silicon Graphics, it's a 1990s hardware and software company. We talk about Unix and Linux, which are popular open source operating systems. He mentions DRAM, which are the memory chips in a computer. We talk a lot about the development of the iPhone, specifically the process by which Apple decided to base the iPhone on the Mac's operating system at the time instead of Linux, which was a competing operating system. And we get into what happened when Tony and his co-founder Matt Rogers sold Nest to Google. In the summer of 2015, Google reorganized itself as a holding company called Alphabet and Nest was spun out as a separate entity under Alphabet. You'll hear Tony talk about Dropcam, that's a camera company that Nest acquired. The CEO of Dropcam eventually left Nest and Alphabet on not so great terms. During that part of the conversation, you'll hear us talk a lot about smart home stuff, including Thread, a mesh networking technology that connects smart home devices, Zigbee, another wireless protocol that lets gadgets communicate, and Matter, a standard that aims to make everything in a smart home work together. Okay, that was a lot, but I promise it's worth it. Tony is a force of nature and he's got some great stories that you're gonna to want to hear. Okay, Tony Fidel, here we go. Tony Fidel, you're the principal at Future Shape, which is an investment company. You were instrumental in building the iPod, the iPhone, Nest Thermostat, and now you have a new book called Build an Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making. Welcome to Decoder.
4: Hey, thanks, Neil. It's always great to talk to you. It's been a while, and uh, especially before COVID, so uh, it's great to be here. Thanks.
3: Yeah, you and I have known each other forever. Actually, one of the first big stories The Verge ever published was one I wrote about the Nest. I don't even remember. It was before the site came out. I was like showing you PDFs of what our website would look like during yeah, one of our I, interviews. I
4: remember it was great. It was we were both launching our companies at the same time. It was <laughs> that was a fun that was, that was a fun fun set of days.
3: Yeah, that period was, uh, I think, formative for me. Obviously, with NAST very formative for you. But a lot's happened in the past 10 years. That was 10 years ago. Why write a book about building things now?
4: Why? Because I woke up one day and I realized the only reason why I'm sitting here and why I'm able to talk to you and talk to so many people is because of the successes that I've been able to be a part of because of the mentorship that I I was given, that I was offered by various people along my career. So one day I woke up and I said, wait a second, I'm sitting here because of all of these things we've done. But all those things we've done is you know, because people helped me. When I thought about who those people were, I thought about it and I, most of them had died. And I was like, wait a second, You know, I'm not getting any younger. And I think the baton has been passed to me and I have to give back just like people, you know, gave to me without any financial reward, what have you. It was just literally the lessons learned from, I I don't want to call myself a master, but a master to an apprentice kind of a thing. I just wanted to take all those stories, all those lessons learned, all those mentorship lessons and give them back and hopefully allow all these people creating around the world. It's no longer Silicon Valley. Back in the nineties, it was, you know, Silicon Valley and maybe a couple other places in the world. Now it's everywhere in the world. And by putting it in a book and putting those lessons down, and they're all based on human nature. It's not about you know we did this one technical thing with the iPod, or we did that with the you know the Nest thermostat. This is about human nature, and the reason why it's unorthodox. I say it's unorthodox book, is because human nature doesn't change. Technology changes, and it it's moving faster than ever. And it's going to continue to move even faster, but human nature doesn't change, and because of that. That's why this book is unorthodox. Because people would think, oh, what's the latest and greatest? Most management books, most mentoring books are, you know, about, oh, let's do this kind of crazy thing that's never been tried before. Most of that stuff never works. It's all flash in the pan to sell a book or, you know, get you on a podcast. But this is really about the human nature details about how to build yourself, your team, your project, build companies. Right. And that's what I think is really important. And that's why I wanted to write this book was to give back and help people.
3: Yeah. As I was reading the book, I thought, well, this is just bait for decoder. Cause <laughs> one of the, one of the core ideas of this show is that every company has the same problems. Every leader has the same problems. And really we're just talking about trade-offs on the fine edges of really similar problems across the industry. So I ask a bunch of questions on decoder in every episode, but Because it's a book, because it's you, I'm going to ask them in a slightly different way. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I I always ask everybody. (laughs) This is the Tony special, man. Um, I always ask everybody how they make decisions, which I, I do want to ask you. But the book is basically about how to go through all the decisions you make as a leader. And that, for you, was knowing when to quit a company that was failing, knowing when your time at Apple had run out, knowing when to fire your lawyers for overcharging you. (laughs) <laughs> knowing when to quit, right? Like you run through the full gamut.
4: And it's also about knowing about yourself and and knowing when, if you're going to be a leader, if you want to be a manager, how you want to approach your career. It's not just about being a CEO. It's, you know, I tried to make sure it's kind of all the steps along the route as you individuate from your, your family and become a <laughs> professional.
3: That's what I mean. Like in the most abstract sense, how do you think about making those decisions for yourself? And then how did you think as you're writing the book, how to communicate, oh, there's a framework and a process here.
4: Hmm, I think for me, and this was exactly another reason you know, why I did the book is I just get a gut feeling. It's not always the lo- most logical thing. These are opinion-based decisions, not data-based decisions. There's a chapter in the book about that, right? And so to write the book was just my opinion saying, I think this needs to happen and I'm gonna go and explore it and see what happens. Either that's the same thing that happened with the iPod or with Nest. I find something, a pain or, or some kind of thing I want to solve. And I just kind of pull on that thing. And I keep going. You know, Obviously, there's you know, using your brain a lot, but there's a lot of gut in it. Because when it's opinion-based, you know, you're not going to go out and say, ask 20 people, should I write a book? And then you're going to go do that right? A lot of people think about products that way. When they're going to do the V1 of anything, they think about, I'm going to ask a lot of people and see what they think. And then I'm going to come back and then I'll make my judgment based on that. It's like, no, 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 no. You got to know inside what you want to do. And that was about the book. Now, moving forward, every decision I've made and every kind of job I've had, except for the one at General Magic, I created myself. So if you think about it, I went to General Magic, I I was dying to go to General Magic. That was in my gut. But I just took whatever job they gave me. But when it came to Philips or came to my own startups or obviously Apple, I was able to create the position I wanted and not just take what I was given because I came with ideas. I came with knowledge, certain knowledge, and said, this is the what I want to do and this is how I want to do it. And I think a lot of leaders and people respect that as opposed to I'm just taking something someone's giving me you're going there and you're offering something, you're offering value beyond what they do. And I hope that was also in the book, right? I'm trying to offer value beyond what you normally would see. And so with the book, it was really an exploration about how to format the book. So I would say that uh, Dina Levinsky, she was my co-writer on this, she and I spent six to nine months just getting the format right because I didn't want a long form book. I was trying to make micro chapters. For the TikTok generation, like, okay, we only have so much, we only have so much time, attention span. And like, how do you get people engaged and get them drawn in? And so the format of the book is not a regular book. I, I you know, it's really odd. You know, and many of the publishers that I pitched to, they were like, I don't get it. Just write a book. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to innovate the format. Like it's time to innovate, <laughs> and so i I hope we did that, and so that was another leap of faith. It was just we spent a lot of time iterating to get it right, and uh, it was kind of frustrating at the beginning, I must say, but i I hope we nailed it. The reason why I'm writing this book is really you know to help all the profits of this book are going to be matched five times. all the profits that I make from the book are gonna be matched five times by me, and they're going to go into a climate-focused fund to help find businesses solving our climate crisis. And then any monies that come out of those investments are going to go right to climate initiatives, uh, philanthropic uh, entities, what have you, NGOs, who are working on climate change.
3: That's really great. Let me keep pushing on decisions, though. It's the heart of Decoder here. How do you think about making decisions now after your whole career? How has that changed when you're like, I got to make a big decision. And for you now, you're an investor. So it's a lot of mentoring people or deciding when to spend money. How do you make those decisions?
4: Again, it's a mix of gut and rational and emotional decision, right? Do I like this team? Do I like the person? Are they transparent? Are they trustworthy? Are they able to, you know, break down walls because you're going to get tons of walls. But at the same time, are you doing something that matters? And for me, matters means existential. Are you doing something to help society, the planet, health? I don't want to hear about the metaverse, okay? I really don't. (laughs) You know, fuck the metaverse. Uh, You know, I I understand VR and AR in certain applications, like in design and, and things like that, but I don't want to meet people in the metaverse. I want to be able to look into somebody else's eyes right? I want to see and feel and look into their soul and they can do the same thing and and build a relationship. You know, Zoom is much better than a phone call, but the metaverse, give me a break. So I want to spend my time on things that matter. I want to spend time because I have kids, right? And it changed the way I thought. I want to make sure we have a planet for my kids, my grandkids and their generations that they raise, right? And when you come to this point in life, you got to say, especially when we have existential problems, we have very limited resources on this planet. We have very limited time as humans. The planet will be here long after we're gone. But we need to take charge. And yeah, we might not have caused the problem, maybe our parents or grandparents or whoever did, but we're living with it. And guess what? It's not like our parents are gonna come in and fix it now. No, they're either out and retired or they're, they're not here anymore. It's up to us to fix it. And we have limited resources, brilliant brains, Money, time. We got, at best, 30 years, maybe 20. Shit, we got to get building now. And that's what I want to spend my time every day doing. And I want to be with entrepreneurs doing that, right? And that's what I think is most important. And that's what we, as a community, need to understand. That we think about how we live our lives personally and professionally and how we live together to try to make this planet a better place. Because it is, you know, I'm sorry, we're morbidly obese on this planet right now we're really morbidly obese. We need to go on a diet, collective diet.
3: Let me just offer you the pushback there. I think I I understand your criticism of metaverse, and I don't know if I wanna spend my days in a headset either, but but a lot of your book is about overcoming the barriers and the obstacles and the naysayers. There are a lot of people working on those projects who think that AR glasses are the next great technological leap for the world. And I might buy it in some circumstances I can see what they see. I can hear their pitches. How do you put you saying right now, fuck the metaverse, up against, there's a lot of people with a vision that is really just a vision, but they are aggressively trying to build it and stay focused on what they think is the next generation of technology?
4: Look, I am not against VR, not against AR or XR. You know, I've been doing VR since 1989. At University of Michigan, I made gloves and lights and 3d displays on sgi workstations and stuff unix workstations so i'm not against it what i'm against is that we're pouring so much money and time to get people so focused and be more insular and stop making human connection i all for 3d design we, we invested in a company called gravity sketch gravity sketch is doing an amazing collaborative design in vr and AR. I'm all for AR glasses, which is see what I see. So you put on your uh, the AR glasses and you can actually see, you know, so you could have somebody come in, a, an expert or something, and you might be working on something. Maybe it's a, you know, medical application. And that expert can see what you see and can start to direct you and help you to do the, the task. You're, I'm all for that stuff. But when we're trying to say we're going to make human connection and we're going to have meetings in the metaverse. When we're going to sit there and dance together in the metaverse? It's like, give me a fucking break. Seriously, let's do something real. Let's solve problems we have. I want to solve problems and pain points that we have, not create and try to find things and solve problems we don't have. It reminds me of general magic. We were building the, the iPhone 15 years too soon. We were just trying to impress the engineer next to us. Right, we were all trying to impress each other with that in this great sandbox. Yes, the iPhone came out 15 years uh, later, but we were we were working with technology that wasn't ready yet. And of course, you had to have General Magic to get to the iPhone. But Meta, Facebook, whatever they want to call themselves, has spent probably 30 billion dollars on the metaverse already. When it be, between Oculus, 30 billion dollars, really? Is that an efficient use of money? And where are we still? We just have better games and we're meeting in the metaverse with no, you know, with no hands or no bodies, no torso. <laughs> we don't can't even look into each other's eyes. 30 billion no bucks. Legs. There are no. hands. I'll give them credit. There are hands. Okay, no hands. Legs. Hands. Whatever. Okay, so good. All the Italians and other people who speak with their hands can have hands. Okay, great. But you still can't look in your eyes. 30 billion, and that's one company. Like, let's go solve real problems with it. So I'm not against technology. I'm against technology in service of no problems. We're just trying to create new problems. One of the things I always ask people
3: is, how is your company structured? But I wanna, again, tweak that here because a huge chunk of the book that really resonated with me is that as your company scales, the structure will break at certain amounts of people. And actually one of the first things you and I ever talked about was when we were starting the version I was writing that story, I was like, we're 25 people, we're gonna be 50. And you were like, watch out. Like, that's a moment. Like, you better stop and think about that moment because everything will change once you get over that number and the next number. The book really points out that as you get bigger, preserving the culture of a company, the spirit of a place necessarily changes yet in layers of management all this thing. I will tell you over the past 10 years, this is the hardest lesson I have learned. I also think maybe you can't learn it without learning it. That's right. Like you can tell someone that information all you want, but the actual pain of going through it is what makes you see that it's real. How did you deal with that?
4: Well, you know, when I was building my first team, real team, that was at Phillips. And I went through that. I went through that nightmare of like you go past 40 or 50. And if you didn't set up your organizational structure, right, you got to like almost go down, fix the structure, and then you can build back up again. And so when you go through that enough times, you learn tools, techniques, and how to engage your team to help get past that. And so yes, of course, sometimes you just have to, uh, you know, learn by doing and failing. It's a lot part of the book. But if you learned it at 40, let's say you went through the bad thing at 40 to 50 employees. Well, you you went through that pain, so don't let that happen again at 120, <laughs> right? So, okay, sure, you're gonna learn that and, and your team's gonna learn that and adjust to it. But other times, you may hire people who are on your team who've gone through that transition before, and they can help you and they can help see it. So you just have to tune into knowing that that problem is going to exist. You may not know exactly how to solve it, but just know that it is going to exist so that you're sensitized, your antenna's up, right? And you're going, oh, okay, I'm going to have to think differently about it. It is not just same old, same old. When you go from 40 to 60 to 70 people, you have to mentally change the way you lead and how you manage and how you communicate. And so, if you just know that, sure, you may have a different way you want to do it, but you just got to know that you're going to hit that, right? It's just like a warning sign in the road, right? Like, you know, uh uh-oh, shit, you know, construction ahead. You better pay attention. So uh, hopefully, you know, people will solve that problem in different ways. I gave some tools to try to how I thought about the problem and how I've seen other companies do it, because we have you know over two hundred companies in the portfolio of our investment portfolio that handle it different ways. So everyone will do that, but at least there's some some signposts along the way to say, look, pay attention, this is going to happen. It happens to everyone. Try to find some ways around it and try to engage people to work as a team to solve it. It's not just all you.
3: Which breakpoint do you think is the hardest? Because I'll tell you what I think. I think it's like six to 20. And I think 20 to 1,000 is actually just kind of, you're kind of on the same
4: road. Well, six to 20 is definitely hard because it's so personal. The relationships are so close and you have to start to individuate in terms of roles and who's getting what information. But then the next one at 40, that's when you have to change your whole communication style. You have to really think about, especially 120, to tell you the truth. 40, you can kind of get away with it because you can still have weekly meetings with the team or every other week kind of meetings. But when you get to 120, forget it. Because that's, you know, that's that limit of knowing everybody's name, having personal relationships with them. That's just a physical limit of our brains to have that much time and knowledge about each person's life, to have a real personal connection. So yes, I think it's really down at that first level. And then it's at that 120 level where you have to really think about things very differently. And you have to understand that this is a business um, and not just everybody having fun together, you know, and having a great time. And that, it does, that does hurt. So let me bring this back to the metaverse, right? I look at a company (laughs) like, well, you were
3: were at Apple when it went from like 3,000 people to 80,000 people. Yep. And now Apple's cruising over 100,000. Facebook is 100,000 people, 17,000 people working on the metaverse. Google is a, (laughs) It's crazy. Google is a massive company, over 100,000 people. These companies have all just gotten gigantic. I would say I think that there should be more competition in the market. I think there's some regulatory stuff you could do there. I also think there's a a strong argument that these companies are so big that they're just gonna fall apart on their own. Yeah. Right, because they're just too big and unwieldy. How would you, if you were plopped in the middle of a 100,000 person meta and you've got a $30 billion bet with 17,000 engineers on the metaverse, how would you think about structuring and aligning that company so it actually executes?
4: Well, I don't have all the knowledge of Facebook or Meta or whatever it's called. I will tell you this, I was at Philips Electronics when it was 300, it was either 375 or 275,000 people in the company, huge company. It's now, I think, about 25,000 people. So that was 1995. It was, you know, quarter, a million or more people. And now it's 25,000. So it's a factor of 10 below. It's got, you know, it's a whole different company now. And what happens is, you know, it's like the Roman Empire or anything else. It all disintegrates because you don't have the right communications. You don't have the right... Ability to allow each unit to go off and do what they need to do because then they start bumping up into each other and they're competitive and silos get created. Same thing happened to Sony, right? So I think there's just a normal arc in the life of a company. I think what I would be doing is I would try to sit here and try to figure out how to, you know, split up the companies, try to figure out what needs to be in which organization, you know, and I don't want to say this because you know you read this in the book about Alphabet but you gotta figure out a way of how to make individual operating units. You know, if you look at what Warren Buffett does, Warren Buffett buys fully operational companies and puts them underneath a kind of a a financial management structure, but each of them operates independently. Alphabet had the right intentions, but it did it with the wrong business units. (laughs) It (laughs) it It took the most nascent business units and said, we're gonna spin them out and we're gonna make them, you know, those are babies. You need to coddle those babies. You need to protect them. You don't want to spin them out and let them, you know, you go out into the wild. What you want is those ones that are fully formed go out in the wild and make them much more resilient by making them either individual public companies where they have to try to survive by themselves as opposed to, you know, the ad business funding everything else and letting them just lose money, You right? You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're still living at home with your parents when you're 40 years (laughs) old, right? Oh, mom and dad will just keep paying for everything and I'm just going to sit here and have fun. At some point, they got to get kicked out and they got to go, you know, live on their own and and know how to make their own money and build their own, you know, their own existence uh, independent of the mothership. And so I think a lot of these companies are going to have to start thinking about those kinds of divisions and making them live on their own. And not when they're babies, though. Not when they're
3: babies. (laughs) (laughs) We need to take a quick break, but when we get back, we're going to talk about his time working at Google and a very bold decision for a chapter title.
1: Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first, you think jackpot. But then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap stakes have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
3: We're back. I want to talk to you about Nest and working at Google because it's in the book quite a bit. You founded Nest. You built the thermostat. You built the connected smoke detector. You had a grand vision for the smart home that you were going to build out over time, your whole thing was, I'm gonna find unloved products in your house and make them really cool. And thermostats and smoke detectors definitely fit in those categories. You sold the thing to Google for $3.2 billion, which at the time was a huge number. I recognize we are now in 2022 and Elon's like, $44 billion for Twitter, I'll just do it. But at the time, $3.2 billion for a startup was a massive number. As you said, Google then reconfigured itself into Alphabet, Nest got split out. That seemed disastrous. Nest seemed? is now reintegr- <laughs> <laughs> Uh Right, it's, it's in the book. It was a disaster. Nest is now reintegrated into Google. Tell me that story. I've heard bits and pieces of it from you and from others over the years, but it really seems like Google was trying, as you say, to protect the money machine of search and ads while still like, trying to innovate, and they couldn't figure out how to structure that, they ended up with kind of the worst of all worlds at all times.
4: Right, right. Well, look, we all went into it with, well, at least I did, and our team did it. Ness. We went in there thinking this was a marriage and going, you know, we had all these discussions for months previous about, you know, are we going to have kids, and how many kids are we going to have, and where are we <laughs> going to live, and, you know, and we're like, okay, we're going to get married here, and it was, it just seemed all great. It was like, oh, this is going to be wonderful. Yeah, you know, people got upset with us. We didn't get bought by Apple or whatever else. You got bought by Google. How could all these Apple guys go to Google? And it was like, look, this is business. This isn't personal. We got to do the right thing for our customers. We got to do the right thing for the platform we, we were trying to build and everything. And Google was seen, you know, they said all the right things. And we're like, okay, great, right? And then, you know, over time, after like the first six months, it became like the Tindler swindler, you know i was just like what happened where did all this great stuff you said we were gonna have go it just it went out the window and then over time it was we were just one toy in the toy box when you think you're bought for 3.2 billion and people would actually respect that and go oh that's a lot of money this is a team and we're going to invest in this to be a new area of google's business you would think that people would respect that that's not how it worked you know, at Apple, it's a whole different story, I, at least when it was Steve was there. It was respected and you did stuff and people took note and try to make it success. And I didn't realize, and this was my mistake, Google had gone through many of those billion-dollar acquisitions and just let them flail, right? And just said, oh, that was a fun ride, moving on. <laughs> that was a fun ride, moving on, because there was no existential crisis because you always had the money tree the ad money tree from search. And so then it was just a matter of, okay, we're just going to cut our losses as opposed to these are real people. These are people with families trying to do the right thing on a mission, trying to build this thing. And they just saw it more as dollars, you know, at least from the finance side. And then, you know, other people inside the company just like, oh, it's yet another project we're trying as opposed to at Apple, at least under Steve, every single thing that was tried needed to ship because it was existential. Like you couldn't, not make the iPhone successful because you were cannibalizing the iPod business. It had to be successful. Everyone needed to be on it. And if you were on something that was distracting from it, you needed to move to it and work on it. At Google, that wasn't the culture. Now, obviously they're successful and there's many smart people and, and it works for them. But it's very different when, you know, you live and die each day by your vision, your mission, your dream, and you don't wanna just run to another project because it's just safe and easy. You're trying to do something hard. And that I didn't feel at the time was, you know, w- how Google thought.
3: There are cross-references in the book to other chapters of the book. There's
4: <laughs> one very memorable
3: chapter title, which I noticed as I was reading. And it comes up over and over again. The chapter title is Fuck Massages. Fuck Massages. And it, is, it is basically an entire chapter about Google's culture of perks and the, the sort of culture they create yep. and how you hated it and it wasn't particularly positive. Google, for people don't know, Google has famous perks, free food, free buses, everyone gets a bike, it's nuts. Why are you so negative on that culture of perks?
4: There are two things. There's, there are perks that help you with your life outside of the business, that help you build your family, help you outside of your day-to-day life. And those are called benefits, right? Whether that's medical, dental, whatever it is, it's all of those benefits education, extra education, those kinds of things. Then there are perks, which are food at all times, things that make you more insular and make you only wanna think about the company and become one with the Borg and never leave, right? I'm not against buses. I think buses are great. I think that's great for mass (laughs) transit. So don't get me wrong, but when you're sitting there and the buses are used as a tool to, oh, show up late for work at 11 o'clock in the morning, Oh, because the bus was late or I got the bus late. And then you leave at two o'clock in the afternoon after having the free lunch at work and then you go back. Oh, well, I showed up at work that day. It's like, did you really? When people start taking advantage of all these perks and no one pushes back. And when people are, are bringing you know, home dinners for their entire family, you know, like 10 dinners and to-go boxes and they're gonna, you know, I'm feeding my family, it's like, is that really what you're trying to do here? That's not where we're trying to incentivize. And no one's pushing back on it. So to me that's where we moved from the mission and the team to individuation and me 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 me. And so you have to have a balance between perks and benefits and team and mission versus me 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 and individualism. I didn't see teams working together. I didn't see people trying to, you know, better the company. They were bettering each each other themselves but not necessarily doing the right thing for the customers, doing the right thing at that time. Now Sundar has done a lot of changes and he's pushed back a lot. And that's why you've seen the teams rise up and scream, like, it's not like the old days. Well, guess what? <laughs> it shouldn't have been like the old days.
3: <laughs> you said Sundar, I'm sure the listeners know this, that Sundar Pichai, he's the CEO of Google now. He was not the CEO of Google when you were there, but. You're talking about Google, and in the book, you draw a direct comparison to that particular Google culture at the time to Apple. Apple famously does not have free lunches. There's like a famous story about Steve Jobs, who drew a $1 salary, going to the cafeteria and still swiping his employee card that just bills the meals out of your salary. And he was laughing because he didn't know who was getting billed (laughs) because he only made a dollar. It was very funny. (laughs) Not to focus so much on free food, but... Right, you've drawn the comparison here between a company like Apple, which faced an existential crisis and knew it had to ship, and Google, which printed money, and, I don't know, has 15 messaging products that have no coherent strategy, right? Right. Do you think those things are as directly connected as, as I'm making them out to be here?
4: In a way, yes. The other thing you have to understand is Apple, you know, it's been in business much longer. It's gone through disasters right? It went through a disaster in the 80s. It went through another disaster in the 90s. So it has gone through the cycles. Google has never gone through cycles, right? It's all been up and then they manage the downside so it doesn't really affect them. But, you know, there's never been any reckoning like, oh, you have to fix these things because you can keep milking that cash cow. So that it creates a culture of like, oh, it's always going to be fine you're living in a dream state, right? If you go to most other companies, you have constraints, really hard constraints. And now I'm not saying there's not budgets at Google and all this other stuff, but the budgets are not anywhere near like as severe as what I've (laughs) experienced at like large, you know, corporations like at Philips or, or at Apple or what have you. We were worried about every freaking $10,000 in the iPod team, to tell you the truth. Are we going to make 200 units of prototypes or are we going to make 50 of them? And why would we make so money? And, and how much would it cost, right? Because you're dealing with atoms. Google really didn't have to deal with atoms till Google Cloud and bigger things. And then yet the cash was coming in. You know, and look, look what's going on in Intel. Intel's finally getting the reckoning. Pat is doing a great job. He's being the, the parent CEO that it's needed for so many decades since Andy Grove. You're talking about Pat Gelsinger, the current CEO of Intel. He's going and slashing, cutting, tr- changing things. That's what it takes when you're a CEO of a company that has been riding high on the hog for so many years and rethinking things. Intel's finally going through that existential crisis. The last one went through with Andy Grove when they went from DRAM to processors, right? So I think that, like you said, what these companies get so big, I think these companies need to go through some kind of existential crisis to actually help them solve their cultural issues. You just
3: mentioned parent CEOs. It's another concept in your book that some CEOs are parents. By the way, your kids are teenagers. I, maybe I should just interview them next I'm dying <laughs> to know how this goes. You're about to boot them out of the house, it sounds like. Um,
4: or he's out uh, of the house. So I didn't boot him out, but when <laughs> out of the house, he's 15, he's going to boarding school, but he did that you, by himself. <laughs> it was very surprising and actually very emotional for me.
3: But you, you have this concept of parent CEOs and then babysitter CEOs, right? And the parents push you and the babysitters just make sure you don't die. Right, you're saying Pat Gelsinger is a parent CEO. He's changing the whole thing. He's pushing the company forward. It sounds like you're putting Sundar in that
4: category. In a different way. Yeah, he's a change maker.
3: Well, let me just ask you about Apple. Apple prints money. They just had their third best quarter ever. Yeah. You know, the iPhone continues to be a, a smashing success. Yep. They reinvented the Mac with the new processors. They've got the services line of business that seems to be printing money. Step back and squint. You can make a lot of these criticisms of the current state of Apple, Right. They've got a couple of cash cow businesses, and then eh, you're a car guy. They've dumped however many billion dollars into a car project that seems to get reset every couple of years. They're funneling money into AR and VR, just like everybody else. How would you evaluate that company now?
4: Well, it's the number one company in the world, right? You can say all you want about Tesla and Elon and all that stuff, but they're the number one company in the world. So it's obviously working for them, right? They still have a culture that i don't believe you know maybe it's gotten a little bit fat around the edges but it's still a very lean culture you know jeff williams and the ops team those same guys are still there same guys and gals are still there doing a a really whiz-bang job of you know making sure that that company's running well and so people are faulting them because they think you know there's not enough innovation well you just said it you said m1 processors We started, we didn't start the M1 project, but we started the Apple processor thing together when we bought PA Semi back in 2007, something like that. And that was getting us on that path. And now they finally took, you know, years. And it does take years to be able to best the, you know, the, the processor guys in the business. They did it. To me, that's innovation. That's a lot of risk to make that switch over. Maybe they could have done it a little bit faster, but no one else did it, and they still did it. Now everyone's trying to copy them and say, we're gonna make our own processors, right? <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned, there's innovation, just not the innovation that gets everybody all riled up. You know, Maybe it's a little bit geekier that's fine. Sometimes you have to start at the lowest levels, be really geeky. That's what I'm doing with most of our investments. Be really geeky on those investments because they will transform the top end sooner or later. It does take time for it to flow up, right? The iPhone wasn't created because we said we're going to make a Mac smaller. The iPhone was created because we said we're going to make an iPod bigger. And it took the iPod to get to the iPhone, right? And how many years did it take to get to the iPod, right? So look, you can say what you want about Apple and you can always wish that Apple was gonna surprise and delight you every quarter with something that the world had never seen before, but that's not reality. And there is number one company in the world and they're innovating, maybe at the lowest levels, but those lowest levels are gonna change the company dramatically and those products dramatically over the next decade to come. You just have to wait. And I'm sorry, everyone, the TikTok <laughs> generation, the millennials who need, who need instant gratification. Sorry, that just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen that way, especially at the scope and scale of Apple.
3: So you mentioned the uh, iPod, bigger Mac, smaller. For Apple nerds, this is like an endless debate over what happened in the bake-off to make the first iPhone. There was no You're bake-off. Here. I gotta ask you, right? There's this. There's this myth. I don't know an urban myth of computing. Ru- yeah, rumor that to make the iPhone there was one team that tried to scale up the iPod and one team tried to scale down the Mac and then I don't know like Steve Jobs spun around in a circle and picked one what actually happened there
4: okay here's what specifically happened so we're off doing the iPod making the iPod stuff happen and it became very clear to us that there was a a threat and the threat was real from mobile phones or was it called, feature phones. And they were starting to add music, MP3 playing, to the cell phones that they were shipping at the time.
3: I had one. I had a Sony Walkman phone. It was one of my favorite little gadgets. Yeah.
4: yeah, I don't even know if it played MP3s. It probably played that weird Sony <laughs> so format. Some weirdo Sony format, yeah. Right. Memory so, stick. Right. So, anyways, so... So there was this existential threat coming because, like, people only wanted to put one thing in their pocket. Was it going to be the iPod or a phone that played music? And since Apple was nowhere near in phones in 2004 or at the time, what were we going to do about it? So, you know, and we talked about this before, the Motorola Rocker Project was born, which was, well, let's get everybody to use iTunes and they could get a limited set of music on their phones and Motorola Rocker was going to be it. 99 songs was all you're gonna get, right? It was kind of like a shuffle in a way, iPod shuffle. So we started down that one. We know how a disastrous project that was. Steve didn't even wanna show it on stage when it was ready.
3: Yeah, the contempt with which he announced this project is, if you go back and watch it, it's very funny.
4: It was hysterical, but we were all, probably three, four months before that thing shipped because we were on, under contractual obligation to ship it. We were like, oh, wait a second. This is not working at all because it was not our team. You know, Jeff was had to deal with him.
3: That's Jeff Robin. He was the VP of consumer applications at Apple. He was the guy who ran iTunes.
4: He was in, these, in our executive meetings head in hand going, I can't take these guys. They're not getting anything <laughs> done. You know, we can't get them to agree to anything. And even if they do, they can't implement it. We have to do it for them. So that was the point where Steve was like, fuck it. We got to go and we got to go make and figure out our own situation. Right. So then it came down to, are we going to buy a cell phone company? Are we going to make our own? And the way we thought about it is we are not buying a mobile phone company and putting music on it. We're taking a computer and putting a phone with the computer. That's the way it was thought. Okay. So. We started going down that line. And so we said, what can we do with the iPod? So we made an iPod plus phone. So there was the iPod classic, like, you know, with the wheel and it would have a, you know, the phone would be a a headset, right? And so you could talk into it and you could listen to it and you could dial numbers with with (laughs) with the wheel, right? We went back to rotary phones. We spent a lot of time working on it, it didn't work. So that was one angle we were working on. And at the same time, we were doing video iPods. So we're trying to do full screen iPods for video because we're like, well, it's great to have you know video but and, and music videos, but it's a little postage stamp screen. So let's see about making that. So what if we were to make it a virtual wheel, a touchscreen, a single touch touchscreen with a full screen device? So that was going on. Then on the Mac side, they had... Bought a company, Steve Hotelling was the guy um, whose company, uh, it, or he was part of the company. I don't remember exactly what happened there. But it was bought and it had capacitive touchscreens for multi touch. And there was a big ping Fingerworks. That was the
3: name of the company. Right? That's Fingerworks. That's right. Thank yeah.
4: you. Fingerworks. The team there created this huge ping pong size or pool table sized multi touch Mac. It was a projector from the ceiling that projected the Mac interface. And then all of the sensing technology was around the edge of this ping pong table and you could sit there and play with it and i played with it and i was like oh that's cool and steve's like there's multi-touch technology we're thinking about making a mac with this so he showed it to me and then we were all like wait a second there are three different things here an ipod plus phone not working out but we think we know how to build a phone because we know the hardware guts of it oh Full screen iPod, well, we got a big screen iPod. We know how to make that. Oh, and we have this multi-touch thing that wasn't integrated yet. There were no chips for it. It was all discrete logic, it was huge. Can we make chips for this and make a screen that would fit on this? So those were all the hardware pieces that came together. Then there were the software pieces. So we had the iPod OS, which is being very, very, (laughs) you know, uh, nice to say it was an OS. It was not an OS, it was an embedded, Processing thing. It did a, just a couple things. You know, we even try to get games on it. Forget downloadable; game. they were downloadable, but they were not third party. It was really difficult. We made it work, you know, but it was a hack. Look, the iPod OS was a OS was a hack. So, what happened was two things on the software side. So, John Rubenstein and Steve Sackerman at the time said Mac OS will never work on iPhone. So, because it's too big and too, so we're gonna go off and build this new team to make an embedded Linux version of this next generation thing.
3: John Rubenstein was your, your, your boss. He was the VP of the iPod division at Apple.
4: And then Avi Tavanian said, oh, we're gonna scale down Mac OS and make it work. And so I sat there in the middle between Avi and John And they were doing their software things. And I'm sitting here building the hardware and designing the stuff with the team, not just me, but the team looking at the iPhone hardware processor, all that stuff, putting that stuff together. And these two guys started going to war with each other, right? And Avi, he had all the resources and John had very little. He had a team of five, six, seven people. You know, and trying to, okay, we're gonna use Linux. It's gonna be open source and we're gonna make it the right thing. And so there was kind of this run, you know, they were both competing against each other. And I was like, okay. And Steve's like, we're gonna see who wins. I'm like, whatever. So <laughs> they're fighting and everything else. And I'm I'm sitting here building the stuff that we can build and we're getting, you know, diagnostics and stuff running. And then with Steve, John decides to retire. So when John retires, I move up and I report to Steve and now I'm in charge. I inherit all of John's projects plus the iPod and I inherit the Linux thing. And so I was like, I'm, I don't want to be in this war. But <laughs> I, I, that's not a war I chose. Okay, so I said over the next six weeks, we're gonna hold a little competition. We're gonna see which team can you know, make the mark. So there was, Avi had just retired, so it was stall. And then there was Sakaman and the Linux team, and we set off this competition.
3: That's Scott Forstall. He was in charge of uh, iOS software at Apple.
4: Over time, there was, okay, can uh, Mac OS get scaled down to this much flash memory and this much DRAM that's necessary and all of the different interoperations that needed to happen to make it fit on this little device. Then there was Linux scaling up and trying to get everything from scratch. Can you get... You make an app environment. Can you make, you know, all the wireless pieces work? Everything. So it's literally from scratch because embedded Linux in 2005 was really just nascent. It was very tiny. You know, it was bigger than the iPod OS, but it was bigger. So over those six weeks, eight weeks, you know, Scott and the various other people, Scott led part of the team, not the whole team. But, um, and those teams came together and they were really able to shrink it down and they had so much more technology. They even have tools, right? They had the whole app builder and all the other stuff and a lot of engineers who knew it. And it was clear to me that it was gonna be able to fit in some regard on this device. And it was just, it was a no brainer decision. And I called up Steve and I said, Steve, I'm gonna kill this Linux project we're gonna take those that team and they're gonna work on software stacks for the lower level stuff for communications, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, all these other touch, whatever. And then we're gonna work with Scott and I forget the other two engineers who were leading the other pieces of the puzzle onto the phone. And that's really what happened. And Steve was like cheering, going, Thank God, thanks, the <laughs> war's over. Johnny called me and said, Steve, so happy, thanks for ending the war. And then and that's just what happened. And so I get I get called out of like there was this war between the two. And I was like, I never started the war. I never lost the war. I ended, I ended the war. I ended, I ended it. I was like, okay, great. I hope the same thing happens in Ukraine soon. Like, God damn it. Can we get over that war? It's fucking bullshit.
3: You should get over there, Tony. Um, no, yeah, right. Let me, let me ask, Let me. you just mentioned a lot of huge personalities There's uh, Scott Forstall, there's Johnny Ive, there's John Rubenstein, there's Tony Fadell in that mix. (laughs) Uh, Sure,
4: (laughs) (laughs) you gotta survive.
3: These are huge personalities. Overseeing them all with Steve Jobs himself, a huge personality. One of his legendary strengths was that he was able to manage such high performers, such driven people, such big personalities, and then produce great products out of it. I would say that approach is out of favor across the industry now, right? Like even in your book, you're like, no assholes, please. Um, but No, okay. that's
4: not what I said.
3: That is what you said. That's, that's in the book. not so what just,
4: I, let me just finish the question. Okay. And then
3: you can, you can yell at me. Um,
4: I'm not yelling. <laughs> uh,
3: you can tell me I'm wrong. Uh, across the industry now, right? All of the executive teams are portrayed as fast friends, right? We don't hear about these like massive interpersonal conflicts anymore. A lot of those folks have moved on to other things or they're investors now, but I would just say that model of call it team of rivals, call it whatever you want, that model of you've got the big visionary leader and he's got a bunch of high-powered executives who are in competition with each other, with their projects, has fallen out of favor. And I think we might be seeing less innovation for it, right? Is that what you see as well?
4: Look to do things that are, are really differentiated, you need to have creative tension. You need to have creative conflict. If you don't, you don't get to the better result. It becomes much more of like, oh, groupthink. Okay, everybody's happy and all the other stuff. Now, I think at the time, it was because of Steve's personality, and you know, the, I, 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 how can I say it this way? There were only so many dramas that you could cover in the news back in the early 2000s, and Steve was one of them, that it was really media-driven. But if you look at it, I know a lot of people who were or are at Meta slash Facebook, and believe me, there's a lot of politics in that company. (laughs) I was at Google, tons of politics in that company, all right? To think that they're not politics, especially when they're big companies, that is BS, okay? I just don't think the personalities are being covered as much as they used to be because there's so much more news to cover. Look, we got Elon, you know, Elon is now the Kardashians of the business, right? (laughs) Yes. Right, okay. We call
3: him the biggest celebrity we cover. That's how we think of him in our newsroom.
4: Right, and so, Now the celebrity has just changed. And then we talk, and you guys talk about all the time, look at how often Elon's management team is turned over. Now those management team is over somewhere else. It's just the story has shifted. There's still drama at Apple, just less drama, right? Because Tim is still a personality in his own right, but he's very different than Steve is. Steve was, right? So look, it it's just it depends on the nature of the beast and the environment, the macro environment around it. And so I think you know you could pick any company, right? I, I think there was a lot of people with the promotion changes at 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 Facebook or Meta that happened you know, over the last year. There are people like going crazy about that, right? We also have all the sexual harassment stuff. Look at you know, uh, EA. And Activision and Blizzard and all that other stuff. Like, you know, there's just a lot of more news to cover.
3: We need to take one more break, but when we come back, I want to look into the future with Tony.
5: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge? That takes a team.
4: This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive.
2: How much are you charging The Pitch? We're charging
4: (laughs) $99. And Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too?
4: So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on.
3: You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing
2: this? What's what's the moat?
4: How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on the pitch. Go
2: right now and subscribe to the pitch wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: We're back. I wanna end on kind of a view into the future, but I wanna start rooted in Nest. We've talked a lot about maybe other people's decisions. One thing I've always been curious about are two acquisitions that you made at Nest. One was Dropcam, which is a camera company, and the other one was Revolve, which was a, a company that you know they made like a, a hub with all the radios in it that could connect everything in your house. Dropcam, the Nest Cam actually shipped, but very publicly those founders were not happy.
4: Uh, one founder, I wouldn't say both founders, <laughs> one founder.
3: One founder wasn't happy. Revolve never shipped. What happened there? Why did you make those acquisitions and what happened there?
4: So Revolve was really easy. Revolve was about to go to out of business. Mm-hmm. That was kind of an acquihire in a lot of ways. So we were like, oh, we're gonna get all these different engineers and technology and we'll see what we can do with it because we were building a platform, right? Not just another, you know, another device. And so Revolve was just part of that acquisition and it was cheap. You know, and uh, it wasn't that many people, maybe 30 people, something like that. So Revolve was, yeah, whatever. Dropcam, real quick, it was just like Matt wanted to do it. Matt Rogers, your
3: co-founder at Nest.
4: Matt was like, we, knew, we were been saying we wanted to do cameras for years. Let's do it. So I said, Matt, okay, go off and do it. You know, and so he went off and ran with the ship and brought the company in. And we, we talked about it, but I wanted him to have his own thing. So he did that. You know, no one forced the founders to sell. No one said, put them over a barrel. So you had to do this. We talked about it. Here's what it was. Here was the deal. And they accepted it. I'm sorry if there's sour grapes and they didn't like, or you, at least one of them didn't like what happened at the end. But hey, shit happens. Look, I'm no longer <laughs> at Google you know, or Alphabet or whatever <laughs> it was. Shit happens. You know, go live your life. And, you know, business is business. Not everything, not everybody gets what they want.
3: This is like an important piece of the whole book, but I think we it's interesting to look at it sort of at a different layer here. He wrote a lot in the book about Nest going to Google, the Google corporate culture. You call them antibodies, just like rejecting Nest as a company. The culture is not meshing. Well, there
4: were antibodies at Apple when we were doing the iPod too. Let's be clear. There's antibodies in every large corporation.
3: So Dropcam comes in. Do you think they perceived Nest as having antibodies to Dropcam?
4: I don't know. I really don't know. I think there was a Conflict of vision. Like I was screaming and yelling, we need to do a doorbell cam. We gotta do a doorbell cam. And they were like, no, that's the stupidest idea ever. I was like, what? Everybody wants to see what's going on at the door. Well, it doesn't work because the camera's too low. And I was like, guys, we need to make a doorbell cam. And they were like, no, 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 no. I was like, what? We're gonna make one. And so then finally I just relented and said, okay, well, what are we gonna make instead that's better, right? At some point I gave in, I shouldn't have given in, I should have done the doorbell camera and ultimately it finally happened. But it was just because they didn't like that someone else was given direction and saying, we need to do these things. So to me, it's like, I didn't like what they were saying we needed to do at Google for Alphabet for Nest. And I said, screw it, I'm not into this, and I got out. But I didn't sit there and trash them all day long. I don't (laughs) think I trashed them all day long at the, you know, on the book either. I think I was very fair in the book. It's just two different ways of thinking. But to go off and trash somebody because you don't like it, well, grow up. You made
3: a big bet with Revolve, with Nest overall, on a very nascent technology at the time called Thread. Yeah. Thread is still pretty nascent. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of radios in the world, but uh, they don't talk to each other. There's a standard called Matter, which we cover on the other show, The VergeCast all the time. Uh, that's supposed to unite the smart home. This is a big bet for a startup to make on a technology that, you know, it's 10 years later, and it's still nothing for consumers. How do you make that bet, and where do you think things are now?
4: Well, I'm very pleased that where Thread is and where Matter is, you know, Matter it used to be called Weave. So it was thread and weave. Now it's thread and matter. Protocols, especially all the way up to application level protocols and radios, it's very difficult to do. Okay. I thought it was going to take seven years. We're now 10 years in. We're going to get there in the next two years. I am very proud of the work we did. And I'm very proud of what we did, even as a small company, because we had the right vision. I got pushback all over Alphabet slash Google, especially from the highest level, going, this is the stupidest thing ever. We don't need another radio. We don't need another protocol. Well, guess what? Meanwhile, there's
3: another group at Google developing a new radio standard probably.
4: Well, yes, there was. (laughs) So, but look, it's finally come to light and it took a lot of time. And I give all the credit to the team after I left and Matt left. They went on to make it happen, make it real amongst many companies, including Apple and Amazon. So look, these things take time. GSM you know the first uh, GSM mobiles global system mobile born out of Europe took a long a lot of time too and SMS as well so you know these things take time a- the M1 processor took a lot of time there was a vision at the beginning and so so be it again that's what it takes and i'm so proud of that work and i'm so glad that we're going to have a legacy beyond the nest brand and the nest products, but we're going to actually have something that was fundamental. That's going to change the way products interact just like Bluetooth is or wifi was, you know, um, so very proud of that work.
3: When you're making that kind of investment you're saying, okay, it's seven years out, but I got to ship this thermostat today and the next thermostat next year, how do you balance your thinking across those timelines? Like that to me would, yeah, it seems like the hardest challenge.
4: Look, I remember this really clearly when the Wi-Fi didn't exist. So this was 2001. Wi-Fi didn't exist yet. There were four, three or four different Wi-Fi like standards back in 2000. Lucent had the basic technology and Apple threw in and said, we are going to make Wi-Fi embedded in every single one of our products. Even if people don't have internet to the home, even if they don't have a Wi-Fi base station, we're gonna make sure all the endpoints have it built in. Because one day we can turn it on and all of this stuff happens, right? The chicken and egg game. So that's the way I thought about Nest. I said, all of our products must be connected. So even in the very first generation of the Nest thermostat, we put a thread radio. Now it wasn't called thread at the time, it was called Zigbee, but it had the same wireless fundamentals at the lowest levels that we could add other software on top of it. I said, all of our products have to connect together. Wi-Fi doesn't cut it, Bluetooth doesn't cut it. We need a new standard. Zigbee was still starting to happen in the home theater world. And so I said, we need to bet on something, and that's how it went, because we had a long-term vision. The products, like a thermostat, stay on the wall 10, 12, 15 years. You don't go change it every year or every 18 months like you do a cell phone. And we shouldn't even be buying cell phones at that rate either, given what (laughs) we're doing to the planet. But that said, these things are gonna be in your house for a long time let's try to make them work together and make sure that we have that customer and that customer relationship for a long time and not make them go buy a new thermostat five years in. No one does that. So that was the long-term vision because we said we had a platform in the home, not just a product. And the whole goal of Nest was to be a platform company. And that's the reason why we sold to Google ultimately, because we knew that the platform company would take billions of dollars to build Okay, over time, and no VC in their right mind would fund a company with two product lines that were, you know, the products themselves were unit economic wise profitable, but the overall company was not. So you sit there and go, okay, we have this and now I'm going to ask them for money to build a platform. There was no way I was going to get that. So I was never going to be able to build the dream, the vision the way we wanted to. So that's why we ultimately had to sell, because we wanted to be a platform company.
3: This seems like one of the kind of central tensions of all products that I talk about lately. You have a great piece of hardware and then it's connected to a software stack or a platform or a connectivity stack, and you have to just continually spend time fixing and improving that thing. And every hardware CEO I talk to comes on the show from John Deere to Sonos, and they're like, we actually spend more money on software than hardware, which is completely backwards to me.
4: No, no, that's always the case.
3: Well, intuitively backwards. I would yes. Say. Okay. But now it is revealed, right? Like this is, I think, the accepted wisdom. How on earth can any startup survive with that huge weight of perpetual software cost without just selling out to one of the giants?
4: It's a really good question. Look at Tesla. Tesla's a perfect example. They were able to wrap a lot of software with a lot of metal. Okay, and build a platform beyond the car. So that was the software platform in the car, then there was the supercharging network, then, you know, and so on and so forth. There are those once-in-a-lifetime kind of situations that you go for and you try to make happen. There are times when it does make a lot of sense if it is differentiated, okay? With Nest, it's a slow-moving you know, market, right? Whereas EVs, all of a sudden, boom, You know, the whole world decided they didn't need to make the transition. So in a lot of ways, he got lucky. But he did the right things because none of the suppliers would offer him anything. He had to build it because he had to, because nobody wanted to work with him because he was like, oh, who's this little company? You're not a Ford. You're not a big three or whatever it is. You're not from Germany. So he had to out of necessity. I think a lot of those companies that are born out of necessity and have to create these things, those could exist because they're doing something so differentiated and different. And that's the reason why we sold Nest, is if we didn't sell, I don't think we would have been able to do it because we were already bumping up into those other companies. Now, if a next car company comes in and Apple has their own car or there's a, a Google car, well, then, yeah, that might not happen. But I do think you can innovate in other spaces that they're not innovating in, and you can create other platforms outside. But you just have to try to, you know, not try to replicate or go against them. You have to go in a whole different direction that they're not looking at. And so we're doing that at a couple of our startups now. We're making new platforms that these guys aren't even looking at because they don't understand the new hardware, the new software, the new markets and pains that are opening up because of climate change or or health things and building those platforms. So, you know, I think that can happen. Just don't try to build a platform that you know sooner or later these guys are gonna get interested in building and could even fudge you out of it It it, existence, even if they don't build it.
3: Let me bring that back to Matter real quick. The idea of a standard like a Bluetooth or Wi-Fi is that, right, you can build something and get all the benefit of the standard for free because you just connect to it. Everyone uses it. That's a great network effect. I look at the smart home and I say, well, Amazon just wants to own everything in my house or Apple wants to own everything in my house or Google. Matter is the thing that's supposed to break that. Right, so all this stuff can talk to each other, and my iPhone can connect my Amazon Ring devices or what have you. They all say they wanna do it. They're all part of this board. I do not see why their incentives align such that it will actually happen. And like, that seems like a really tenuous bet to me. Do you think that it's actually gonna happen?
4: I think these companies have realized that there are so many products that need to go into the home that they're not gonna build them all. So you have to treat them almost like an app ecosystem. You know, there's certain apps on your iPhone that come from Apple, and there's a, bu- a lot more that don't, right? And so you need to have everybody looking at all these different angles. The hardware, like connected light switches and plugs and stuff, to tell you the truth, and that's why we didn't do it in Nest, it's not a great business. It, <laughs> frankly, it sucks, right? So you're like, do I really need to do this? No, I don't. I just need to own the software and the user interface, but I don't need to connect to all that stuff. Most of the products in the home connected ecosystem, they're not great businesses. They're not great businesses unless you own the platform and the user interface. So they're gonna let all these things bloom, and you know what, what's the hell? Let them use some kind of you know matter-like protocol, and let them connect to me, because I can only evangelize so much. We tried to make these kind of, oh, only this ecosystem can work with this ecosystem. You know, I think just like we have, like you brought up with Bluetooth. Okay, Bluetooth headsets. You know, in certain cases, Bluetooth is not even being used in AirPods, right? It's something else is being, you know, the the whole stack, I should say. Over time, when it became a good business, we'll individuate and make our own thing. Whereas most cases, just like Wi-Fi, you know, you can use all kinds of third-party stuff. And I see the same thing happening with the home connected products. Just what is the standard? Let's all go for it. They're usually not great businesses for the platform companies. So, okay, no big deal. Now, let's say there's some product that just blows everyone away that, oh, we didn't, we didn't realize. Well, then Matter, people will start making additions to Matter that will be just like we saw with the browser with Microsoft or even Google, making their own proprietary extensions to that protocol. And those sometimes are successful, most times fail. So my hope is that Matter, just like Bluetooth, will continue to make tons of evolutionary changes and just keep up with what people need. It may not be the best thing ever. And you might see things like you know the AirPods out there and then that'll ultimately come back to a Bluetooth or another standard. So, you know, it's just that war. But for the most part, most of those products are bad businesses.
3: (laughs) (laughs) There's like a a light switch CEO out there right now just like crying into his coffee.
4: Yeah. You know, I talked to a lot of them because they want me to buy them. Back in the day, they were like, I won't name names, but there were a lot of them said, please buy my company because you need smart light switches
3: or whatever. So... All right, I'm gonna tell our producer Creighton we gotta get a light switch CEO on the, on the show. <laughs> <laughs> really come at
4: why
3: they're running a good
4: business. They're not. Gr- uh, they're great businesses, but not for these large companies that make you know 80 points margin <laughs> or 60 points margin. These are 20 point margin companies like cable, you know, making cables, right, making docks.
3: <laughs> I've talked to those guys. They're some of the scrappiest folks out there because they I are love running. Them. Yeah.
4: And let me be clear. M- almost my whole marketing team at Nest came from Logitech cuz I wanted <laughs> scrappy. I wanted people who knew how to talk to customers and do do a lot, make that with those marketing dollars sweat. I didn't want Apple guys who could like and I love the Apple guys. They have but they have resources beyond what a startup has and they think very differently. Right? So, you know, you gotta think about your your constraints and hire properly for those constraints. And the Logitech team, Anton and Eric and Mateo, all these people, they are amazing people and they did a scrappy, amazing job. Look at what Nest looked like, you know, when it came out. I think we did a really damn good job. Very proud of it.
3: I got one on my wall here, it's great. Actually, the first generation ones I bought from my parents, it's still on their wall. Last question, you're an investor now, you've got Future Shape, which is your investment company. What's the bleeding edge technology that you're investing in or paying attention to that no one else sees?
4: I can't say the names of the companies because they're still, well, I can tell you one, Menlo Micro. Menlo Micro is a great one. They are having their, they are creating the transistor moment for relays. So, relays in the world, you know, little electromechanical or solid state relays, they open and close contacts. When we electrify the world or we make the world fully wireless, you need these types of relays everywhere. It's called distribution for electricity or RF. All of our cell phone towers have them in them. These guys have made a MEMS component that replaces relays, and relays haven't been innovated since the 1880s. This is the first thing like that and people have tried for 40 years to make this work these guys finally cracked the code these things are going to be everywhere and again just like that m1 processor you know it's going to (laughs) it's going to change or the initial process it's going to change everything over time same thing goes here especially as we're moving to much more energy conservation and those kinds of things so menlo micro making an electronic uh, micro mechanical switch for power and rf distribution is huge like, I can't tell you, you know, how much, we waste so much energy today in just the, in the, in these networks. This gets rid of it and makes it much more reliable. So it's crazy stuff like that. We do diamonds without mines, like we're in diamond foundry. So we're making diamonds. We're making diamond wafers for the next generation silicon. So yeah, you're making, okay, you're making you know, jewelry. Well, guess what? That wasn't the only thing we were making. We're making literally diamond semiconductor wafers because that's the next generation of computing technology. So these are the kind of crazy things that no one sees that we're investing in well ahead of the curve, not the stuff that you're hearing about in the press, Meta this or NFT that or whatever. We're you. on the
3: press right now, come on. This what? A big,
4: <laughs> you got a big audience right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's not in the greater, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, look at how cool it is. And it's like, you know, it's gonna be cool. Uh, I think it's really cool. The geeks think it's cool. One day when they see these things in their headsets and in their VR headsets that they're staring at all day, then they're gonna go, oh, that's cool too. (laughs) All right, well, Tony, you've given me more time than you promised, I really appreciate it. I could talk to you about
3: uh, MEMS Relays for another hour. I love talking to you every time we hang out. Thanks for coming on the show.
4: Hey, let's have a drink and let's get kicked out of a bar again together, so. (laughs) All right. <laughs> I would love to, man.
3: We'll Come to, to Paris.
4: You I'll be in New York. Let's hang out. Okay. I'll end here. I will just say this. I said this
3: before we started taping, uh, but I'll say it to the audience it feels like throughout my life, Tony Fidel has popped up and been like, you should grow up a little bit, like get married, <laughs> have a kid. Uh, so this is another one of those times and we'll have to have another one soon.
4: And, and like, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for the 10 years of all the hard work you guys have been doing at The Verge. I still think you're the best news source for for the technology world out there and I'm always reading it. And you guys have just, you've really lived up to what you said you were gonna do 10 years ago. So you should be very proud. Thank you. I appreciate that. We've got
3: a on coming, so I'll show it to you earlier. I
4: can't wait to see it. Show it to me in, the, <laughs> show it to me in a bar, all right? Yeah, I love it. Okay, man. Have a great one. Have a great weekend. Thanks
3: again to Tony Fidel for taking the time to come on Decoder today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder@theverge.com at or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. By the way, if you tweet at me about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.